have to agree, but mm. I, I would probably extend something a little bit mm. further. So rather than talking about antioxidant, we talk about anti-glycation. And there is a substance, I don't know if you've heard of carnosine. Now that's carnosine with an S, not carnitine. Everybody confuses the two. That's actually been shown to be a, a glycation inhibitor and it can actually reverse glycation as well. Welcome to the Fat Emperor podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins. We're supported by the Irish Heart Disease Awareness Charity, which advocates a simple CT scan to reveal your CAC score. So know your score and take action to prevent that premature heart attack. Everything you need to know will be right here. Dr. Paul Mason, finally get to catch up with you all the way from Australia. Pleasure's all mine. Excellent. Yeah, I've been watching some of your videos and they're superb because you are going through all of the detail of the lipoproteins. But you've also got the clinical experience with patients, many, many patients where you're getting to see this in real life play out. So maybe today we'll talk a little bit around these LDLP and LP little a and some of these advanced lipoproteins and what they really mean. One of my favorite topics. Right. So where do we start then? Well, I guess LP little a is one that's becoming very popular out there in the press. And a few years ago, you'd hardly hear about it. Mm. Now, I've done quite a bit of research on LP little a, but I think you've gone that step further. So maybe the context around LP little a, when it's bad, when it's high, when it may not be bad, when it's high, kind of what it's all about for someone who gets a high LP little a reading. Well, I, I guess my first thought on LP little a is that it's just a surrogate marker. And I guess what I mean by a surrogate marker is that it, it's there, but it's there by association, not by causation. So as you well know, uh, the little uh, molecule um, that LP little a uses to attach to the ApoB100 moiety, when that gets secreted, that gets se secreted separate to the B100. And it only attaches to the ApoLipoprotein B100 when it's oxidized. So the existence of lipoprotein little a by definition reflects the presence of oxidized LDL. So in, in other words, oxidized ApoB100 particles, LDL particles. Exactly, exactly. So if you don't have oxidation on the ApoB100 moiety of the LDL particle, then the little a will not attach. Right, so people with uh, low LP little a, it's obviously a good sign. Yeah. People with higher LP little a indicates more oxidized lipoproteins, which is not a good thing. Uh, but interestingly, too, certain um, genetic peoples, like I think in Africa, LP little a does not associate with worse outcomes at all. And interestingly, the Katavans, or it could be the Semaine people with no heart disease, really, their LP little a, I noticed, was higher than the LP little a in the heart attack men in the 4S statin trial. So there seems to be a lot of, it's still a very ambiguous measure even though, as you say, it should indicate a problem. Well, I think part of that just reflects that, I guess, LDL and, uh, you know, quote unquote, cholesterol full stop, it doesn't give us a full risk profile. I mean, it's not the only factor that's going to be contributing to cardiovascular disease or stroke risk or something like that. So it's important that we don't all of a sudden start looking at cholesterol and LDL oxidized or not in isolation. If you've got other risk factors going on, that's important too. Yeah, and it may over, if you have many important risk factors in a good place, 
then having an isolated one may not really have any impact on the system worth a, a damn possibly. Yeah, yeah we've got to look at the whole picture here, mm. the whole package. And I mean, that's what I guess mainstream medicine has tried to do with their risk calculators. Um, you know, they say, well, how old are you? Are you male? You know, that increases your risk. Do you smoke? And they pluck all of these things into their calculator and they come back with a number. Now, unfortunately, a lot of what they put into their calculator is erroneous. So, I mean, they're, they're looking at total levels of LDL and some of these other things sometimes. But uh, the concept of a risk calculator is actually quite good. It understands that it's a multifactorial, uh, there's a multifactorial contribution to risk. Yeah, and in fairness, then you put together your factors of choice and you get a much better risk projection than, than you would with any single risk factor for sure. Now, I guess if you do a calcium scan, you're way better than all the risk factors in the risk calculator put together because it actually sees the disease. But yeah, in the absence of getting a scan and actually finding out the disease level and the risk, the risk calculator can can fill a gap. Yeah. Yeah. There, or or the presence of LP little a, but or you know oxidized LDL. But just understanding that you you shouldn't take them in isolation. Absolutely, it's a multifactorial issue, and picking a single factor is what a weak engineer might do. <laughs> so LP little a then does reflect generally oxidized uh, LDLs. And I know, knew they were intimately connected to each other for some time. I also remember having a paper where most of the LDL involved in the plaque was actually of the LP little a type as opposed mm. to classic LDL. So that would also tie in. Yeah, I mean, I think this just reflects that oxidized LDL is the stuff that will penetrate through the endothelial lining and that's the stuff that's going to form the plaque. If you have a healthy LDL particle that's not modified and by modification I mean either glycation where you have sugar attaching to the B100 or oxidation of the LDL particle, if you don't have either of those factors there then it's just not going to end up in the atherosclerotic plaque and the reason is because it travels there inside a macrophage. Well, well, it doesn't actually, it, it resides there inside a macrophage. It doesn't actually travel there. And the only way it gets inside the macrophage is through a scavenger receptor on the macrophage. And those scavenger receptors have no affinity for a healthy LDL particle. It's not going to stay there. Well, and if you take it back a little further then, Paul, and some of the work I've been doing recently. So if you take normal, non-oxidized, non-glycated, non-damaged LDL particles in your plasma, they're yeah. in your blood. And then you can, of course, have oxidized LDLs in your plasma, in your blood. Mm -hmm. A million dollar question is, can ordinary LDLs go across the endothelium and become oxidized and become macrophage, become part of the problem? Or is it only oxidized LDL in the plasma, even mildly oxidized, that can really go across the endothelium and become part of the atherosclerosis process inside the wall? So I think on the balance, I mean, it's almost always oxidized that would cross. But I mean, I would hesitate to say that, you know, non-oxidized could never cross. But the point is, if it could cross, it could come back again because it's not going to be bound up by macrophage. Yes, true. Though they do sometimes, some lipidologists say once they go in, they can come out, but they will get trapped on proteoglycans like the proteoglycans are trapping your healthy LDL to hold them and oxidize them. That's, a, that's one viewpoint. Mm, I'm not sure that's substantiated by empirical evidence. 
Yeah, I'd agree. There's a paucity of evidence uh, conclusively showing that. So oxidized LDL, I think you can safely assume. And actually, Paul, I remember I had a few papers from Eastern European teams, uh, not from American teams, where they took oxidized LDL, very mildly oxidized, not the hardcore macrophage level, and they found that 40% of endothelial cells would die when exposed to these mildly oxidized LDL, but mm. not when they use native LDL. And they also showed entrapment much higher for oxidized LDL than native LDL. So I guess that would tie in with your belief that oxidized LDL is, is inherently a driver. Yeah. And native LDL is probably not so much something to... Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I think the, we can take it back a step. Mm. And it's glycation of the LDL which often precedes oxidation. So having high blood sugar levels... It means that you've got these uh, LDL particles floating around in this soup and they're more likely to be exposed to the sugar molecules. And there's a process called non-enzymatic glycation, which basically means it's a con concentration-driven process. The sugar will attach. And that sugar attaching actually can generate reactive oxygen species. So the very process of glycation in some instances is enough to oxidize that LDL particle. Um, but by being glycated, it also means it can't be taken out of circulation by the liver. So the residency time in the circulation will be prolonged. And obviously, the longer it's sitting there, then that's also going to be more likely to be oxidized just on a time perspective. So it's the glycation and the sugar in the first place that does the damage. And that's certainly one agent of jap damage. And in the population nowadays, we know in America, around 70% of people are essentially diabetic. So that's going to be a huge driver of LDL damage in yeah. any case. Um, there are other sources of LDL damage, I guess, but that would be the big one. Yeah, well, I mean, look, we there's other risk factors um, that will increase the likelihood. So the omega-6 oils, polyunsaturated oils, the of the omega-6 variety, they're much more prone to oxidation. And we know that, and there's some really nice studies out recently where they're actually looking at the structure of cell membranes, you know, comparing omega-3s and omega-6s. And it, it really does um, set it up. So if you've got a longer residency time and you're, you've got these pro-inflammatory omega-6s sitting in the membrane or, you know, sitting within the particle, then obviously it's, uh, or even in the circulation, you're going to set yourself up for trouble. And that's pure synergy, yeah. So you've got a combination of vegetable oils excess, which ironically the heart organizations push, uh, combined still. still, amazingly, if you're listening out there, <laughs> um, but also then the excessive glycation from hyperglycemia and postprandial sugar spikes from the kind of sad diets our people are eating. So you've got this terrible synergy to damage LDL particles and have them become part of the... Cascade. And then, as you said, then they can also damage the, the endothelial cells. In turn, so we've got this... this cascade. Uh, cascade and, and a self-reinforcing loop, I think, in some cases. It's yeah. shocking. So the other thing is, I remember a paper where the LOX1 receptor in the endothelium and it also takes part in many parts of the atherosclerotic. Oh, sorry, is that the LOX1 on L the macrophage? The, also, the same macro thing. 
Yeah. So I have a paper which I was fascinated by, and it basically says that oxidized LDL is the problem and not native LDL, 2009 mm. paper. But what they showed was the LOX1 is on the macrophage, the LOX1 is on the endothelium taking mm. uh, oxidized LDL from the plasma into the wall, and it's involved in around four other places, yeah. including the macrophage. So LOX1 is involved everywhere. but. Well, it's not all... necessarily just, lo I think there's actually six separate scavenger receptors on macrophages, LOX1 being only one of them. Yes. And I think there's another one or two that might actually be able to be involved in that process. Oh, true. There are many and it's very complex. But I think what this team was saying that even just looking at LOX1, mm. it comes up in so many parts of the atherosclerotic cascade. Yeah. But their real point was that it illustrates that oxidized LDL, even in the plasma, not just trapped in the wall, yeah. is a fundamental part of atherosclerosis and native LDL, they basically pushed mm. aside and said not relevant. Exactly. And, and it's probably also worth pointing out here that uh, the reason oxidized LDL is so bad because it can generate something called reactive oxygen species, which are basically uh, unbalanced valence shell electrons that will then basically go and uh, they'll, uh, they'll do damage to what they come in contact with. And there's really neat evidence that antioxidants can actually reverse or prevent some of this damage, not reverse it. Once you've scrambled an egg, it's a bit hard to undo that. Um, <laughs> And but, one of my favorite examples is something called uh, Gilbert syndrome, which uh, in medical school, that, that's an Australian pronunciation. I think they like to say Gilbert syndrome. Yeah, uh, very posh. I don't, well, we try, <laughs> it's French. So, but this is actually a condition where you have elevated levels of bilirubin in the circulation, which is a potent antioxidant. And we call this a syndrome. We say you've got Gilbert syndrome, but if there was any one syndrome which I could have, it would be this because it's actually associated with a significantly reduced risk of cardiovascular disease. Significantly reduced. It's, I think it's in the order of 50% or something like that. Massive reduction. And purely because I'm, uh, I'm surmising here is the antioxidant potential of the bile going around is probably undoing some of the, uh, the damage um, of the oxidized LDL particles possibly before they damage other structures. Right. And Gilbert's is not particularly problematic in itself. I, I don't think there's a lot of morbidity or mortality. No, well, actually reduces mortality. That's the whole ah, point. Yes. Your chance of having a heart attack if you have Gilbert syndrome is a hell of a lot less than if you don't. As I said, if there's a syndrome I could have, that would be it. And, you know, an, an irony, God, the ironies are going to fly here. The irony is um, went to a low carb diet because he was exposed or he was scanned with fatty liver and his gamma glutamyl transferase was up over 100 and I told him that's fatty liver right that's diabetes yeah. he went on a low carb diet for just four to six weeks collapsed all of his bad markers GGT and I think ferritin and everything looked fantastic the doctor got a shock but his bilirubin had gone up significantly yeah so i mean which may, may have been if, just you, further, if you're but... under less oxidant stress yeah. then you might not be uh depleting it as much obviously there's other pathways involved mm -hmm. in bilirubin circulation but uh, yeah but i guess it seemed to be when it goes up it's a bad thing but just to well, your it's point... a little bit like uric acid i mean we always mm -hmm. associate uric acid as being deleterious because it's associated with gout etc etc mm. but uric acid is also an antioxidant I'll tell you some other ones is melatonin is a powerful antioxidant and there's nice evidence there that that actually can uh, reduce damage. Now, 
And absolutely, I've heard that. Now I will, and if with good sleep cycles and all, you probably optimize your melatonin compared to shift working and all the other negative mm. effects of bad sleep. But um, all of the antioxidants you're talking about now, they're endogenous, internal, made by your body antioxidants, mm. which can be very powerful. I think though the external antioxidants that industry portion nutraceuticals I think they have very limited effectiveness compared to endogenous what you're talking I think about. I have to agree but oh. I, I would probably extend something a little bit mm. further so rather than talking about antioxidant we talk about anti-glycation and there is a substance I don't know if you've heard of carnosine now that's yeah. carnosine with an S not carnitine everybody confuses the two that's actually been shown to be a, a glycation inhibitor and it can actually reverse glycation as well. And it's been shown to lower HbA1c in type 1 diabetics. And it's also been shown to reduce kidney damage. So, uh, and the way I think that, you know, it has all of these benefits, the downstream benefits, is by interfering with glycation on LDL particles, and it has been shown to interfere with glycation of LDL particles, then you prevent the downstream effects of the oxidation and the subsequent damage. Well, the whole cascade, you cut it off at the knees somewhat. Mm. So, and I guess yeah. that that is an exogenous supplement, which I occasionally, if I've got a patient who I consider particularly high risk and I see a hell of a lot of glycation or oxidation when I have a look at their lipid profile, then I, I often do recommend um, substances to inhibit glycation and to inhibit oxidation while they're in a high risk phase. Excellent. And you know what, Karnasin, you immediately rang a bell there because several months ago I met a couple from England who uh, they're promoting an Eastern European developed uh, scanner. I think you connect to your ankle and elsewhere. But they were saying that exactly that, that Karnasin in high doses, higher than the recommended doses, has a dramatic antioxidant effect. Mm. And I was meeting with them quite briefly and I thought afterwards, did they mean carnitine? But I said, no, they did say carnosine, and I intended looking it up, but I never got a chance. Yeah, well, it's mm. just, it's two amino acids complex together. It's a pretty simple substance. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, but carnitine is the one that always springs yeah. to mind, and the carnitine well, shuttle and all that stuff. Well, carnitine is actually, I mean, I'm, I'm a sports medicine physician, so I, uh, what gets me out of bed in the morning is, you know, treating athletes and trying to optimize their performance, and we're actually uh, mucking around a little bit at the moment, seeing if we can just eke a little bit of extra fat metabolism out of some of our elite athletes by using carnitine. Oh, carnitine specifically. Carnitine, yeah. Because, yeah. I mean, once you get up to about the two grams a minute, you basically top out of your, your fatty acid oxidation. So we're just trying to, obviously, if, you can, uh, if we can enhance that, then you can mm. run along at a higher VO2 for a little bit longer. Excellent. Well, that sounds like really interesting work. That's a bit and of a digression. Yeah. Well, it's inherently safe as well. But carnitine... There's something else about carnitine um oh um, escapes me now but uh no it'll come back to me later so carnosine is the supplement then there's mm. glutathione the body's primary antioxidant yeah, yeah. Now that, that's pretty central right that's kind of the central processor of yeah well this is an mm. antioxidant and i mean i mean this just leads to so much it's involved vitamin c is involved in the production of glutathione as well mm. um and funnily enough, there's a strong relationship between need for vitamin C and uh, your oxidant state, um, possibly due to the need to uh, generate more glutathione. Um, I mean, that uh, we could diverge here and talk about a condition called favism or uh, intolerance of broad beans, which is a genetic condition where people have broad beans and they, uh, 
they have so much oxidant stress, they deplete all their glutathione and essentially they destroy their uh, red blood cells. Wow. Um, so, I mean, you can see what happens uh, when if you don't have enough glutathione and it's not that it's a deficient state of glutathione, it's just that it just ran out. You, you It's essentially running out. And I know the reason I got into uh, biochemical research and all this six years ago is I had a very elevated gamma glutamyl transferase. Mm. And that, of course, creates glutathione and it can also break down glutathione. Yeah. So if you have a high GGT, it's a screaming uh, indicator that you are depleting or overly needing glutathione mm. and the liver damage that often ties into many of these issues. So there are a lot of these measurements and, and things that people aren't really aware of because there's too much talk on cholesterol. and. I mean, we could other... spend an hour just talking about the different liver enzymes. I mean, they yeah. all have different functions. They all mean different things. And they're all really important, but yeah. they're undervalued. Yeah. Well, if you understand what the different patterns mean, um, mm. I mean, it's really valuable information. So, I mean, and it depends on the patient too. So if somebody comes in and they like to have a bit of a tipple, um, that's significant because GGT is an enzyme is what we call inducible. Yeah. That means that if you're having a lot of alcohol, the amount of GGT will actually increase as a part of the body's need to process that alcohol. Um, whereas some of the other liver enzymes, if we have a look at AST and ALT, then they're actually uh, contained within hepatocytes and they get released into the circulation when the hepatocyte dies. Think of it bursting open and the chemicals mm. release into the blood. So a lot of the enzymes that we actually test for, we actually, we're looking for an increase and we infer that if they're present in the circulation at a higher level than they ought be, then the cell that was originally containing that has died. So cellular damage increases in the liver and you get these elevated liver enzymes essentially. Yeah. 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 And it's very important. Yeah. GGT was classically used for a long time to find alcoholics or check whether they were back on the wagon. I still use it as a flag. Yeah. The irony is though, even with no alcohol, for instance, practically doesn't drink. He was over a hundred mm. and it was his fatty liver. So it's an oxidant stress though. And yeah. when he took away the oxidant stress, his bile went up. Funnily Absolutely, because there's less need to use the the antioxidant of capacity of the bile. Exactly, and he was eating a lot of actually watching movies uh, on television. He was eating a lot of ice creams, and he was eating a lot of chocolate. And he mm. was a a devil, as we say, a devil for fruit juice. He drank a ton of fruit juice, yeah. and he thought it was healthy. He thought it was this five a day. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but the, this misinformation is out there on so many foods. Oh, it's amazing. Mm. And I mean, the, the funny thing is, um, even doctors, uh, just because we go to med school, I mean, uh, I'm just telling you the bleeding obvious here doesn't mean we know dork about any of this. We literally don't. We, don't, we have no training in it. No, but your, your personal research through the databases, the publications and your patients you've generated an enormous amount of knowledge in fairness. But as you say, how much of that really came from medical school? It sounds like. Well, I'm actually, look, I've just finished a fellowship a, a year and a bit ago. A, mm. uh, you know, that's a four year specialization on top of when you finish your other earlier training. Mm. And that's one of the only two specialties in Australia that has a formal nutrition component. And I can tell you without a shadow of doubt that what I learned was out of bollocks. And I'm currently in conversation with the, uh, uh, the seniority within the college to actually uh, rewrite some of their curriculum, which will, for a specialist medical college, um, you know, I, I, to be honest, I'm not holding my breath. 
But if mm. we could have a, a, a low-carb friendly medical curriculum within a specialist medical college, I mean, that'll be a real feather in the cap. Wow, it would. Congratulations. But I mean, that's a huge movement. But what you're saying is bollocks. I mean, they're essentially giving out the same old food pyramid style nutritional belief system, which is less than worthless. Yeah, look, mm. look there is some some movement um, towards where the evidence is. But it's sort of like, you know, two steps forward, one step back and being dragged along kicking and screaming there's certainly not a wholesale embrace of the literature and i have been it was just actually last week i, I had a few more emails and so inviting me to review the curriculum for them and mm. uh, i guess i'm sort of testing the waters a little bit and saying well you know how keen are you to actually because you know what i'm gonna say mm. <laughs> uh, is there the political will there to actually uh, change things if they do need to be changed and uh, that i'm not so sure about We'll see what happens. Well, anyway, this is always going to be challenging, but it's great to see some movements within it. So what will we jump to now? This will be a real jumper around our well, LDLP, maybe the particle. Oh, count. Yeah. That's very topical. Well, it's topical. And I, I think it's as the conclusion you've come to and we had a, a pre broadcast conversation, I think it's absolutely correct. All it is, if you understand you have the LDL particles in circulation and they're healthy. And when they've delivered all their cargo, dropped off their triglycerides where they need to be, then they go back to the liver. So you've got this receptor on the outside of them called the ApoB100, and that binds to the LDL receptor in the liver. It's a doorway. It's like a security swipe. goes back into the liver, take it out of circulation. Now, the only thing that will stop it from leaving the circulation is if that ApoB100, that security swipe card, is damaged. And that can be damaged by glycation. And so essentially, if you damage it by glycation, your LDL particles will accumulate in the circulation, but they won't be the big ones. Because as you know, when you glycate an LDL particle, it actually changes the size just fractionally to the point of where it's called small dense. So it, it's a nanometer kind of reduction. And as well as that, it's the LDL that's already delivered its cargo. So it already started out as the smallest a physiological yeah. LDL particle would be. And then you made it a little bit smaller with glycation. So if you actually were to take all of these LDL particles that are accumulating and building up and put them in a glass jar, they wouldn't actually take up that much volume because they're all smaller. So that's why the LDL particle count is actually a better marker than total volume of LDL. Of LDL cholesterol. Of yeah. LDL cholesterol, yeah. And just for people watching, the classic LDL measure was LDLC, where you smashed up all the particles per unit blood volume and found out how much cholesterol molecules were inside them. But the LDLP, as you say, is counting the particles. The themselves. particle number, not. Yeah. yeah, so if you just get them all and smushed them in a jar and said it takes up this much room, mm. that's the total volume of LDL. But that, that's not useful because the LDL particles might be really big, they might be carrying a lot of cargo and they might be undamaged. They might, and most crucially is that latter point, they may be undamaged or they may be damaged LDL. So if you have a guy who's got a 2200 count and another guy who's a 2200 count, mm. orthodox medicine I fear sometimes thinks, well, they're both high score, they both have a high risk. 
One guy has no glycated, no damaged LDLs, and his glycocalyx and endothelium is all in great shape, blah, blah, blah. And his HDL is working fantastic to efflux any that get into the wall, right? The other yeah. guy beside him, everything could be in a mess. One guy is really high risk. One guy is not high risk. Mm. But if you just look at the number, you don't know. Yeah, that, I mean, that's true. That's true. Mm. I mean, I really like, um, we do, a, I do a couple of tests. I do a, a lipid subfraction where we actually fractionate it basically it's pretty simple you just uh you put the substance in a gel and you centrifuge it through and it will travel down through the gel based on its density basically mm. um you can do electrolysis where it, it separates out based on charge but I, I just like the density then the particles get separated out by size and as in addition to that i can do a special test for oxidized ldl using monoclonal antibodies um, that will bind to the, the, the antigen or the epitopes on oxidized LDL. So I combine those two tests and I also, you know, I've got the benefit. I can do APO, uh, I can do A1, which is found on HDL. I can do B100 and I can do LP little A. So I'm so lucky as a medical doctor, I can actually have a patient come in and I can do a complete analysis. And I'll be honest though, most of the time I have people seek me out, they know I'm a I'm relatively knowledgeable about cholesterol and they say my GP wants to put me on a statin and you to reassure me, you know, I need you to do all these testing on me. Nine times out of 10, I say, you can do the testing, it'll cost you this much money, I don't recommend it. And the reason is because we can usually infer enough, the people that seek me out are usually on a healthy diet, they're usually ketogenic, they usually got a triglyceride that's as low as you like, and a HDL that's outside the normal range being high. So we can just, we can run the metrics there and we can just play probabilities and we can say almost certainly your profile is going to be okay. So every self, look, a lot of people come in there to say, look, I understand the theory, but I just want the comfort that I get from seeing a pretty colored graph, uh, you know, or what have you. And we'll often do that. But usually I actually recommend people not to do it simply because they'd be better off spending that money on a massage. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I mean, some people, they really want to see all the numbers, they're enthusiasts, and they're, they may be particularly paranoid about heart disease or might have something in the family. So although mm. you're sure they're healthy, they're low carbers, their trig HDL ratios are good, you can never say never. So they like yeah. to dig deeper. And you're a Probably. metric kind of guy. To a point, but equally, I think it can be overdone. It, my personal thing, and, and obviously I work on behalf of Irish Heart Disease Awareness to promote the calcification scan for middle risk, middle aged mm. people. But again, that's not for people who are really low risk in the bloods. Yeah. And it's not for people who are really high risk in the bloods, because to be honest, those guys, you have to assume they have a problem coming. Yeah. But for the big middle risk where the bloods are ambiguous and it's not certain, that group, you'll find the huge disease people or the zero disease people. Yeah. So that's what I would say is just get a scan. It's a hundred dollars and find out. Well, how I've much actually, yeah. yeah, I actually do use the CAC, the coronary oh, artery. In Australia, Calcium. it's oh, not yeah. that common. Oh, no, I, I use it a lot. Excellent. Um, but um, it's interesting because if you actually have a look at the way it's calculated, it's a much more accurate way of getting a calcium score, but the algorithm has actually been patented. So it's actually, if you have a look at the literature, it, it's, uh, if you have ever wondered why, if you have a, people have a, a scan, maybe in close sequence for, for whatever reason, the numbers jump around a little bit. There's a lot of random noise down the low levels of the coronary artery calcium score. And that's because it takes a peak of calcium and then it multiplies it by a certain area. And that could be soft plaque or whatever. And it doesn't truly 
at low levels, I think, or sensitively reflect calcium change. And I think in terms of risk prediction, I think it's worthwhile having a coronary artery calcium score because you want to know if you're super high or you're quite low. But if somebody's quite low, I will then monitor their progress with CIMT rather than with a coronary artery calcium score. But your other point though at the calcification true, it's really, are you a zero or very low? Are you up in the hundreds? Uh, mm. Depending on your age, are you like substantial or are you really high? They're the guys we want to catch. Um, so in fairness, the CIMT to monitor your month-to-month -month progress, calcium ore every couple of years yeah, for yeah. a highly diseased yeah. person or every six, seven, eight years for someone who's low. Just a quick break to remind you that this podcast is only possible due to funding from David Bobbitt and the Irish Heart Disease Awareness Charity. For middle-aged people, it is imperative to find out your heart attack risk by getting a CT scan of the heart and your CAC score. The new IHDA.ie website has all the scan resources. Please support us by visiting and sharing widely. Knowing your score, you can take action to stop the disease process and save your own life. It can even be as simple as removing sugar, refined carbs and seed oils, i.e. processed food, from your diet. And now we return to the conversation. Mm. Uh, if you get uh, people should be getting the volume and density as well from the calcium scan often they just get the agates done the rolled up exactly and that's yeah. the standard report that we get we just mm. get the agates and score really and um very rarely will we actually get a graphic yeah but i believe nearly any scenario you can actually ask for the volume and density and generally get it yeah. the cimt there are papers out though very recent ones that the predictive power of CIMT for future events is, appears to be very weak. Yeah, and that's generally. why I do it to monitor progress. And Relative. Not, and, not, and not, yeah, so yes. compared to where you were before, rather than as an initial risk predictor. I think the coronary artery calcium mm. is the best for risk prediction if you're looking at a, a, an investigation tool like that. Yeah, and the C, but the CIMT is a really dynamic kind of which way are you heading in, in a dynamic well, you, way? Well, you, you, you should only use certain sonographers. Now, it's actually quite easy. I've got an in-rooms ultrasound and mm. the, you, you can see how it is easy to make mistakes. So what you want to do, you want to find a landmark um, like the carotid artery bifurcation and then you go up say three centimetres or an absolute fixed point and you have to zoom and you have to measure it. You have to be meticulous that you're in the exact same location and you come in on the same angle um, and, you have, and you have to use the calipers on the screen to mark it precisely. And I mean, I actually look, so I've got in rooms ultrasound and I occasionally do it um, in rooms if I'm not running late, but um, I, you, the sonographers I use for it are guys who I trust. Yeah, you have a very special scenario where you're taking your, your error and, and tightening it really tight. On average, CIMT, people wander into a hospital, get a CIMT. I mean, the operator's clicking where he sees the, the borders. Yeah. It's going to maybe be If you have the same person it. do it every time, even if there is an error, it systematizes mm. the error. So it, it makes it reproducible, if not entirely accurate. Yes, exactly. So you, to be quite honest, Paul, you're a very special advanced application of CIMT from what you described there compared to the generic. If someone walks in the door and gets a CIMT, you know, an Acme CIMT company, God knows what they'll get. But anyway, that's yeah. Yeah. So um, we were talking then about, oh, the LDLPs. Uh, so the LDLP then, you would have this massive range of markers you're measuring, uh, the size, the density, the subfractions. 
you're looking at LP little a, you're looking at the whole picture as we described mm. earlier. So to our hypothetical person with a 2200 who's healthy versus the 2200 person who's, who's seriously unhealthy, you're going to be able to tell one from the other with all the other measurements you're looking at. Well, theoretically, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, you just plug that in. And so let's take HbA1c as, a, as an example measure where you really need to interpret it in context. So HbA1c is where you have hemoglobin that has sugar attached to it. And we know that that's, you know, compared to cholesterol, it's probably a better marker of cardiovascular disease because it reflects glycation. But every so often, you'll see one that will be really high or really low. And it'll be incongruent with the rest of the risk factors. And in that situation, what often happens is I go looking and I'll come up with a reason why the HbA1c will be wrong. So for instance, if you have really rapid cell turnover, if you have a condition, a, a lot of oxidation in your body causing hemolysis, uh, destroying of the red blood cells, then you've got a, a fresh population of red blood cells that haven't had time for sugar to attach. So your HbA1c will be lower. Or if you have iron deficiency or any uh, what we call a hematinic deficiency where the turnover of red blood cells is slower, well, this is something that we often see in thalassemia conditions. So um, you know, people from Middle East or the Mediterranean region ancestry, um, their cells turn over slower, so their HbA1c will be artificially high. Um, so, and you only know that by you have a look at these other markers in their blood. You say, oh, ferritin's good, you know, ALT's nice and low, you know, your uric acid's doing this, and you have a look at the whole profile of their biochemistry, and then you say, no, I, I disagree with that HbA1c. But I mean, the, the, because it is such a powerful marker, we sometimes have to resist the tendency or the urge to put all our, all our you know, mm. balls in one basket. Yeah, I think A1C is, is great, but as Dr. Kraft said, it failed its component in the sense that it can be misleading at mm. certain times compared to a postprandial insulin or and something. And most people don't understand it. And no. I mean, what I, I try and control for it. I do a surrogate marker, which is fructosamine, ah, which is looking yes. for glycation of protein. And the most dominant protein in the serum is albumin, obviously. Mm. That's got a half-life, uh, I think, about 21 days. So you compare that to the half-life of red blood cells. So that will give you more immediate red um, glucose levels over the shorter period but the trouble is the reference ranges um, we use in Australia from my lab are just absolutely horrible so I've actually got to sit down I, I've probably got a thousand of them now or something like that and I really need to sit down and try and work out my own reference ranges because I, I can't trust what's in the literature right you need to know what's good bad and indifferent uh, but mm. at least you're triangulating the a1c with the fructosamine and and getting to a better judgment. That's what it's all about. Always using multiple data points. Multiple I mean, that, as you said earlier, yeah. Yeah, that's the way to go. And the, of course, the continuous glucose monitors and postprandial measurements of your blood glucose is another good way to guess at whether you've got high spikes in blood game glucose. Game changer. That's yeah, been an absolute yeah. game changer. So it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, I, we could talk for hours just about that, but um, for people understanding the personal effect on their metabolism in terms of blood sugar levels of the food they're ingesting, I mean, a lot of people come in and say, how many carbs can I have, 20 grams or 30 grams? God only knows. But I tell you what we'll find out is the blood yeah. glucose monitor. And it will also show us a couple of other interesting points. So I mentioned before that glycation um, leads to oxidative stress. 
it can uh, lead to generation of reactive oxygen species. Mm. So we know that fluctuations in your blood sugar level are far more deleterious than a stable blood sugar level. And that's even true. If you have a flat blood sugar level that's higher, that's potentially less harmful than somebody who's got an average blood sugar of lower but is spiking all over the place. And that's where a CGM will give you information that an HbA1c will not. Yes, even though the two are loosely related by equations, the other that one is much more dynamic and showing you what's mm. happening. So I want yeah. stability. Now I mm. and sometimes occasionally what we see is and I don't fully know the reason, I suspect it's uh, um, in athletes um, because of their uh, their need for sugar for anaerobic exercise, especially the anaerobic athletes, when they go on a healthy diet, their sugars will flatline, but it will just tend to kick up a notch. And, and I'm not concerned about that. Exactly. And there's many people who are going keto and low carb. Their A1Cs are okay, but they're often getting fasting blood sugars up near 6 millimole. Well, fasting and is... is the least useful, I think, True. of the glucose measures. But there's a lot of excitement and fuss about running a blood sugar that's a little higher than the ideal low one. But yeah. that phenomenon occurs a lot with people who are eating really healthy low carb diets. They don't have the glucose spikes. And you want them to be flatlined. If they're not, you want them if to... then, if they, if they might start out at a five or something, sure. But if they don't go beyond five point five when they have a meal, couldn't really care. Uh, that's it or even if they're averaging at 5.4 but it only goes mm. up to 5.8 after a meal mm. it's the postprandial spikes that are the main problem yeah. and also the, the beauty of the HOMA index if your blood glucose is a little higher but stable as you say right mm. you've really got to look at your ins insulin if your blood glucose is a little high but stable and you're running really high insulin you've got a problem and the higher glucose may be something to worry about. But if you're running a really low insulin and you're this type of person, yeah. a healthy person with a higher but flat blood glucose, it's okay. Well, I have I'm to be sorry. honest. I, mm. I Several years ago, I was using the Homer. It was actually the Homer mm. IR2. It's noisy. and um, But I've actually found it not that useful. Mm. I think, uh, so I, I do a modified craft assay on most of my patients. And that's where I, you know, I've got about 500 of them now. Wow. Um, and it's relevant for us because Kraft was described using a hundred gram bolus of glucose. And in Australia, we just do 75 grams. So it's actually been quite interesting for uh, sort of uh, to come up with our own normative data on our patient population. Mm. And is um, that working with Catherine Croftson or you're doing that now yourself? Separately? No, that's just, uh, well, mm. I will liaise with Catherine. I mean, we've had conversation about sharing our data with her and letting her crunch all the numbers. Mm. Um, as far as I know, I've in as least in Australia, I don't know of anybody else who's done more than more than we have. Um, five hundred, that's a lot. And you're doing when you say modified, you're not doing the full five hour insulin no, no, assay. No, no. Two hour. Two hours is enough. Two yes. hours is enough. I think it, you 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 can distinguish between all the all the different profiles within two hours of data. But what we also do, and it's really important, is you throw in a half an hour measure, because if you're mm. healthier your insulin peak will be closer to half an hour, even 20 minutes. Yes. Um, and obviously the insulin peak, um, the, uh, the worst metabolic health you have, then that gets pushed back. Yes, so that first phase sharp insulin response is actually quite meaningful. Oh yeah, if, if, it ha yeah. If, it, if they have a big spike at half hour and it drops by one hour, hey, that's nice. You've got a you know, good release of bolus stores of insulin and good capacity and then you're back to normal and you very rarely have overshoot. 
Yeah, and that's Kraft didn't focus so much on that particular phenomenon. Um, he focused more on the one, two, three, four, five mm. hours. The way he put it was, if you're ambiguous at two hour, if you're between thirty and forty micro units, then maybe the third and fourth hour can help. But I don't think he focused so much on the on the first. One thing hour. that I really mm. actually do like is that I get patients to wear a continuous glucose monitor. I think ah. after two hours. I don't really care about the insulin so much, but the glucose, because you will often see a delayed reactive hypoglycemia. Mm. And that, that's not uncommon at three hours. And we pick that up on the CGM trace. Yeah, that's nice. Now, of course, if you do a full insulin assay, you're going to pick it up too, because you're going to do three, four, five hours glucose and insulin. Yeah. But who wants to Nobody do that? Nobody wants to do that. Yeah, yeah. it's too um, much. Too you know, much. when I say, oh, you've got to take two hours out of your day, you know, most mm. people uh, look like I've just uh, eaten their lunch or something, you know. Exactly. <laughs> like, what you just yeah. do what? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Meridian Valley Labs in the US, they have a, a blotter where you can do a full five hour test, but you can just do it in the comfort of your own home with a blotter. Okay. You get your insulin glucose on blood drops on a cardboard ah. sheet. That is pretty sexy. And yeah, I think yeah. it's pretty cheap, but you're right. No way you're going to hooked up to a machine for a few hours. Well, I'm sort of, you know, universal healthcare in Australia. I mean, this is all, uh, you know, if it's medically indicated, which most people come into me with metabolic derangements, it is. It's covered mm. by the Medicare. That's fantastic. Hey, hey, hold on a minute. We're, we're sitting in America as we talk. We're in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, you, you sound like socialist. To, I'm not trying. <laughs> I am actually. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, quiet here. Oh, there's a knock at the door. I think it's immigration. No, I don't. I don't think anyone heard us. Okay. <laughs> so very good. So this continuous glucose monitor, a massively powerful tool, and the watches are coming out now, and people are getting CGMs and the the hackers, biohackers. Well, what you've got now, you've got yeah. this little device where you actually get um, push measurements too from the CGM. So rather than having to swipe, it'll actually push it to your phone every five minutes. So you don't even have to swipe. All right. So if you drop a filthy kebab. You know, there's no you, hiding. Told. Well, I, I love the continuous glucose meter mm. because there's no hiding from it. So yeah. I had a patient a little while ago and, you know, I, I get my patients to do food diaries and I, I can try and understand their patterns. And I was looking at her bloods and I was looking at her food diary and then my filter in my brain was working that said, you know, just be careful what you say. Don't call her a liar. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just sort of saying, so I'm just having trouble reconciling your results with your food diary. And I just had a puzzled look and she looked at me like I was an idiot. And she said, I've been doing a food diary for 10 years and I'm the only person who ever sees it. And I still lie on that food diary. What makes you think I'm gonna be honest on a food diary that you're gonna see? And I thought, you know what, that makes perfect sense. Human nature. People can lie to themselves, but you mm. can't lie to a CGM. No, and that's why it's been, and anyone, anyone who comes in with a high calcification score in the CAC scan or has serious heart disease becomes symptomatic for or any other reason, one of the first things they, they should do is get a CGM because I know they're going to get certain meds and all, and they're going to change their diet. And hopefully they understand low carb is needed or keto along with many other things. Yeah. But a CGM is the first thing that a post MI person or a person who suddenly got a really high score needs. 100%. Yeah, I mean, it's look, just, it's the, a no brainer. The clinical like. utility. I mean, for me, it's absolutely been a game changer. And I've actually steered away from um, pushing ketone testing as much because what happens? What happens if you have somebody come in and they have a one hour insulin of say 200, so mm -hmm. quite or 300, but you know, very, very insulin resistant. How likely are they going to be able to enter ketosis? even if they're on 20 grams a day. Not on God's green earth. 
They're not. But they can still lose weight by being lower carb. So it becomes more important. And if we have the goalpost that, that they're striving for, being ketosis, they're going to become dissatisfied. If we set the goalpost, goalpost is something they can achieve, and that's a flat blood sugar, then that's something that they're actually much more in control of. Now, there's some circumstances. Some people have a horrible dawn phenomenon, and yeah. some people, they have autoimmune diseases. And, I mean, you know, the, the difficulties in people on prednisone or other corticosteroid medications, it, it's absolutely amazing. I should show you some of the traces. Mm. Um, I mean, in, in medicine, we get told, oh, they, they make it much more, they make it harder for you to get blood sugar control, rah, rah, rah. But we pay lip service to it. When you actually see it, so you might be on 10 gram, milligrams of pred, and it might be pushing your blood sugar up to 15 for five hours a day or something. You know, the changes you see are just huge. And I think as certainly as a doctor, I had no concept that it was so massive. And I mean, we blame you and say, well, you're gonna to have to just try a little bit harder now you're on steroid to control your sugar, you know. <laughs> maybe, mm. maybe, you know, do a sliding scale a bit more often. Bollocks, it's never gonna work. Mm. So you need to get them off these agents, or ideally, and, and... Well, I've got a patient at the moment. She came to see me on 40. I had an email, because um, uh, I'm sharing her care. She's actually not from Sydney. Um, and she's down to 15 so far without any ex any flares. She's got a condition called polymyalgia rheumatica, um, which if you if you drop it down too quickly, you get a, a big flare and uh, not mm. a pleasant state. But, you know, even the drop from 40 to 15 is, you know, it's, it's made a big difference. But the residual 15 is still causing her a hell of a lot of troubles. So ideally, by adopting the optimum diet and beginning to fix all of the dysfunction that's going on there, then you can go lower later on maybe in, in those meds well what it, it is so i am mm. actually i'm a big fan now of uh, uh i guess uh, what's more commonly known as autoimmune protocol diets using uh, restriction mm. of lectins l-e-c-t-i-n-s ah. not the and so we see often i mean do establishing that kind of diet in these people actually allows us to accelerate the dose reduction a little bit quicker than what would otherwise have expected now that's a fascinating topic, fascinating topic in and of itself. Actually, I was just chatting. I did a podcast this morning with Michaela Peterson. Mm -hmm. We had a great chat, obviously an extreme case of autoimmune, but autoimmune is everywhere. And cardiovascular disease now essentially can be looked at as an autoimmune disease. So yeah. many more diseases, you it mentioned is. Alzheimer's. So maybe let's talk about autoimmunity catastrophe in the world today and the types of foods that can help trigger it. Well, before we do, oh. let's just talk about the craft test and lectins. Right. So, I mean, lectins, and a lot of people don't realize this, so say wheat germ agglutinin can actually bind to the insulin receptor. And it binds to it in a way that it activates it for a, a lot longer, a, a prolonged duration compared to just straight insulin. Mm. And so, if you've uh, had people who were, um, and I've got lots of patients who they've been on a keto diet that's been heavily plant-based, um, you know, a few lectins in there, and when they've gone and cut out a lot of those lectin sources, they've lost a hell of a lot of weight, upwards of 10 kilos, effortlessly. 20 pounds, 25 pounds, yeah, yeah. American units. So, and I think it's uh, this impact of the the uh, the lectins on the insulin receptor and also the uh, lectins have been shown to create leptin lep 
TIN mm. resistance. Which is a big issue. So if you combine activation of your insulin pathways and leptin resistance, then you can see how these lectins mm. can be so problematic. L-E-C-T-I-N-S. Yeah. Now, they also directly attack the lining of the arteries, the glycocalyx and many other things. Maybe speak yeah. a little on that. So the definition of a lectin is that it's a carbohydrate binding protein. And on the surface of our cells, we actually have little what we call proteoglycans. So little proteins with sugar on the tip. And as you know, sugar is a carbohydrate. Mm. So if you're a carbohydrate binding protein and you see a sugar that's attached to the surface of the cell, what you're going to do? Mm. You're going to attach to it. And I mean, it obviously requires the, the correct receptor binding affinity. So not mm. every lectin will bind to every proteoglycan, but a yeah. lot of them will. And this process of attaching to it damages it. So, I mean, we can have a look at it, what it does from the, if it attaches to the glycocalyx in the gut, or we can have a look at what it does if it attaches a glycocalyx in a blood vessel. Either way, both steps of attachment will damage that lining. And they can be extremely deleterious, not just a mild impairment or problem, but really severe damage to crucial membranes and, and components. Well, let's take the mm. gut. So leaky gut syndrome. Mm. So a lot of people don't realize that gluten or gliadin is actually a lectin. And I mean, and that will also, that will induce leaky gut. That will allow the lining of the the intestine to become more permeable to its contents. So if you diet, if you eat these lectins mm. um, and you have intestinal permeability, then they'll be able to cross into the circulation and meet the immune system. Um, bacteria in the gut that are normally there, that are normally confined to the gut, will be able to enter and meet mm. the immune system. And here's the problem, and this is where autoimmune disease gets triggered, is that the immune system will identify a fragment of a, a bacterial capsule or a, uh, a lectin and it will mount an immune response against it because it's a foreign pathogen. That's fair enough. Mm. And then you have these what are called antibodies, which they're, they're sort of like little, uh, think of it like a searchlight, you know, in, in a bombing raid, and you, you just want to lock onto it. And these lectins will identify something for destruction, or these antibodies will identify something for destruction. Mm. Now, what happens if the, uh, the antigen or the, the particular molecular pattern that the immune system is identifying on a lectin, what happens if that is replicated on the surface of a healthy tissue cell? Yeah, like in type 1 diabetes. We then have something mm. called molecular mimicry, mm. and you end up initiating tissue destruction of a healthy cell. So, And that's the basis of autoimmune diseases. So um, you, you basically need to have three things line up. You need to have picked the wrong parents. Mm -hmm. You have a genetic susceptibility, and that's a big one. That, that's quite important. You need to then have uh, increased intestinal permeability. And then you also need to have passage of substances across the intestine, like bacterial fragments or lectins, that will induce this molecular mimicry type response. And mm -hmm. uh, you have that, and then depending on what particular um, antigen you mounted a immune reaction to, um, your immune disease could target the beta islet cells in the pancreas, it could target a nerve mm. sheath cell, it yeah. could target a kidney cell. I mean, you know, there's a, you know, manifestations absolutely protein. Absolutely. And of course, although the genetic component is important, if you remove the environmental one and that never occurs, chances are you'll never develop the autoimmune condition. It, yeah. Do you think it's 
it's requisite to have the environmental insult that triggers the molecular mimicry. In, in other words, no one is genetically predetermined to get the autoimmune, yeah. or, or at least very few. I don't, look, no, I'm not, not sure. a, I don't know, yeah, but you enough. can get a damn big reduction. So mm. I'll, I'll pick a condition, Parkinson's disease. So this is a disease of the neurons in the brain that secrete a neurotransmitter called dopamine. So that is actually likely to be caused by lectins. And it, this sounds like a crazy convoluted story. So what happens is you actually have these lectins, they pass through the intestine um, and they, they end up um, from the stomach. They can actually enter a nerve called the vagus nerve, which travels all the way up to the brain and they can ascend up the nerve to the brain, to the brain cells that secrete the dopamine and essentially cause dopamine and uh, uh, Parkinson's disease. And that sounds like such a, a ludicrous kind of explanation. So there would be an easy way to test it, right? So you'd cut the vagus nerve. That's the highway that the, mm, these lectins yeah. are using to ascend to the brain. So if that were the case, you could just simply cut that and you, uh, you shouldn't get Parkinson's disease anymore. So the Danes did a study. It was between, uh, I think it was 1972 and 1995. So everybody who had this operation called a vagotomy where they cut the nerves, um, they put them into a registry and they compared them to a, an equivalent control group for the rate of Parkinson's disease. And they followed them for like over 20 years. And they found that the rate of Parkinson's disease was reduced by 47%. Mm. And when they've actually done studies in uh, animals, I think it might've been dogs, they actually gave them uh, lectins and something else to increase their intestinal permeability. And they actually labeled these lectins. So they, they made them immunofluorescent so you could actually see them. Mm. And then they euthanized them. And when they uh, biopsied the brain, they could actually see this P lectin that they'd fed them was now sitting on the dopamine secreting neurons in the brain. Wow. Cross the blood brain barrier. Yeah, well, right. here's the thing. Mm. So very similar, the same pathway that intestinal permeability is caused by it's the upregulation of a, a, a something called zonulin, mm. which then releases the tight junctions oh, or the yeah. proteins that hold the cells together in the gut. You know, mm. zonulin works in the brain as well. You know so, that that can work on the blood brain barrier. Right. So even the BBB is subject to zonulin. Yes. Loosening the, the junctions. Yes. Wow. I, I wasn't actually sure of that at all. So lectins are a huge problem, but but in plant foods, there are many lectins spread throughout the whole plant world. So who knows which person is going to get an autoimmune problem mm. relating to which plant world Luck food? Luckily, so there's over uh, 119 um, uh, plant sources of lectins mm. described at last, the uh, last paper I read. There's probably more, but yeah. you know, they, they, that's, that's still a lot. I mean, uh -huh. quite a bewildering variety but we know where a lot of the harmful ones come from. So peanut and wheat germagglutinin, and um, soybean gluten and phytohemagglutinin, mm, um, that's a particularly good one. That's from my red kidney beans. You know what, if you feed a rat 1% of raw kidney bean for two weeks, you'll kill it. I did hear from, what's his name? Dr. Gundry's book, The Plant Paradox. He came out very strongly and even said a human, if you take a handful of these kidney beans, you don't cook them, which kind of, you know, detoxifies them. Mm. You can die 
uh, and a threshold limit value of 50 TLD. I don't know that if it's ever been described in humans, but what has been described is that consumption mm. of four kidney beans mm. could almost be enough to put you in hospital with serious gastrointestinal distress, vomiting, diarrhea, dehydration. Yeah, that's that, and four. Four. And I think he went further to talk around actual toxicity leading to death. Only no one does it because they all boil them. But I always say to people, what do you think of a food that if you don't boil it, mm. it can put you in hospital with only a few beans yeah. or, or even kill you? Have you ever Does that of, sound like a good food? Have you heard of ricin? Yeah, well, I, I know there's Subway in Japan and I, it's extracted. Ricin is extracted from, from castor beans. Ah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. heard, but you so go this ahead. Is, that's the most toxic, I think it's the most toxic natural substance known to man. And it comes from a bean. Yeah, but they I, use it for nerve poison. True. Now, there are pretty exotic extractions to get the rice and purify. Oh, yeah, no, nobody's going to be eating castor beans. No, no, and uh, true. But, but even the other one, like the beans we just talked about, four or five of them uncooked could mm. end you up in hospital. Yeah. I mean, meat, fish, eggs, and all these things. When when you eat them, they can they're not never going to put you in hospital. No. So no. all of the challenging foods appear to be in the plant world. That's not to be anti-plant foods. There are a lot of good plant foods that cause no issue. Well, there's a study mm. I like to mm. um, talk about, and they actually so reflux is actually can be caused by lectins as well, because oh. the lectins can um, there's a cell called a mast cell, and it's got these two little molecules, IgE molecules, or it's mm. got lots of them but if a lectin grabs the outside of these molecules which are attached to the mast cell they do what's called cross-linking and they lead to release of its contents which is histamine uh -huh. and if you release histamine in the gut you then subsequently get the release of acid so and they've done studies where they've actually had people go on a low-carb diet for uh, six days and actually put a probe measuring their acidity down into their esophagus and they found a significant reduction in acidity within just six days, basically, you know, reversing reflux. And this is, uh, this is lectins, which will do that. Right. So a low carb diet, particularly with because removal. it cuts out the grains. Yeah. And cuts it cuts out. out the lectin rich yeah. foods. So then if you and we'll have to cur curve into closure now, you know, we went expansive and now we go down to kind of conclusive and mm. um, the lectins you really should find out, well, which are the vegetable world or plant world things I should eat that are truly safe? Mm. Well, actually, that's so, sorry, the point I was about to make yeah. is that this study, they looked at 16 lectins for their ability to cause histamine release. Mm. And there was four that really stood out for having stonking great levels of histamine release. And they were all plant-based lectins. So I think that uh, that talks to your point that the plant-based mm. lectins, uh, it doesn't um, obviate animal source lectins from any causing any harm at all. But the most deleterious ones, by far the most problematic ones are plant-based. And it's understandable the old cliche, plants can't run away, and we know they make lots of toxic compounds for antibacterial. Well, it's not a cliche, I mean, yeah. that, that's a fact. Well, well, I mean, it's it's almost so much a fact that it's it's almost cliched. It, it's, it's almost So do you know what they obvious. do now, genetically mm. modified organisms? So wheat germaglutinin is such a powerful pesticide that they're now creating crops, tomatoes and things like that, that have been genetically modified. They've had the sequence for wheat germaglutin and put inside them into corn, for instance. So you might be saying, oh, I can't have 
wheat products, I know that does something bad. Look, uh, uh, give me a tomato instead. Yeah. Good but, luck. But the WGA from wheat, the wheat germ agroglutin, which is one of the most problematic parts yeah. of wheat. It's now is found in some GMO into... foods like tomatoes and oh, corn. That makes things challenging indeed. Um, so, yeah, well, there's gliadin, gluten, wheat germ agroglutin, and a couple more things in wheat. So wheat's a no-go. But from the plant world, what are the... The, most, the bad ones. Well, not somewhere. Well, I even thought, what are the safest, most generic ones? I mean, for me, it's broccoli, cauliflower were bred in the 15th century. They're generally seen to not have much reaction in humans. Yeah. For your classic veg, maybe some of the root vegetables, above ground leafy green vegetables, generally seen to be relatively benign. I mean, what... what what were the selection of vegetables for most people, not for all, but for most people, a selection of vegetables that you can depend on to be unlikely to cause a major issue? Yeah, so... It's tough. It's, that's really tough because, I mean, you can look at anything. So you can look at FODMAP content, which is fermentable oligodisaccharide, mm. monosaccharide and polyols. And certain vegetables, they're really high. And if you're subject to irritable bowel syndrome, you can't have those. Fibre, excess fibre. So there's a hell of a lot of fibre in cauliflower and mm. that causes so fiber causes constipation that's probably news to a lot of your <laughs> listeners but uh, i'll just very briefly talk about the mechanism so the problem in constipation is you're trying to pass something through a small hole so how does making that something bigger solve the problem this is analogous to adding extra cars to a traffic jam to try and clear the traffic so fiber and they've actually done some uh, the best study they've done on it has actually done looked at varying levels of fiber and they showed a hundred percent resolution in all symptoms of constipation on a zero fiber diet yeah i saw that one that was based on a whole bunch of patients 170 who had severe constipation no i think it was, it was 60 uh, they had 67 in the whole trial and i think the arm that went and ended up going on the no fiber was 41 patients oh right it was even smaller than they were called but, but they um, were three but the statistical significance mm. was uh to uh, uh zero point triple zero one or something like that because it was such a it went from a hundred percent symptomatic high to zero percent symptomatic low yeah. Um, the p-value was just insane. I I did get an, a shock. It was the first human trial I'd seen for anything, ne never mind nutrition, that had a hundred percent response, massive response in the intervention group. The it, forty-one out of forty-one all yeah. went from three days between bowel movements to one. But then they gave them back half the fiber they were eating. And they got half as bad as they were before. So they put mm. a cherry on the top of that. Now, those people had constipation. They had severe issues. And I, I think the team did say, well, look, this fiber, this generic fiber, not soluble fiber, I think it was more your classic bran wheat type fiber, maybe. But what they made the point was fiber attracts water and bulks in your body. Yeah. And... And everything about fiber should make it make constipation worse. So they went ahead and did the experiment and they actually demonstrated, well, that's what happens. Yeah. But then what about for healthy people, a little bit of vegetable and fiber in well, the diet? Well, that's the thing is, I mean, it depends on, mm. it depends on the individual. There's yeah. a threshold that people have. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm reluctant to answer your question, what vegetables and what plant foods I would recommend, because if you pick the wrong individual, you'll have a problem with most any plant food. There, there's mm -hmm. Now, some people will tolerate certain things. I mean, let's take blueberries. 
So first of all, they're loaded with sugar. They've got 12% sugar, which a lot of people don't realise. Mm. But they've also got a lectin-like compound in them. And they're mm. also very high. They're a FODMAPI type food, very high in fibre. Yeah, so blue... Let's look at nuts, which is another mm. staple on a low-carb diet. They're loaded with fibre. And they cause, they're frequently responsible for constipation, gastrointestinal distress. So, I mean, mm. I, I have a lot of difficulty and I guess my response is, well, if you really want to have a plant food, it's going to be a matter of trial and error. Yeah, I guess. And I mean, if you if you eat meat, fish, eggs and healthy ancestral foods, along with after you check yourself for bad reactions, more benign types of plants and vegetables yeah. bring in some nutrients and some nuts. I mean, Brazil nuts bring in a lot of magnesium and, you know, there are. Well, they're, they're promoted heavily for their selenium. And selenium as well, yes. And magnesium as well, though, I believe, and selenium. Actually, Brazil nuts. But you are... always have to wonder mm. about the availability of nutrients within nuts. Well, if you've got farm nuts, of course. I mean, I believe the magnesium was because the nut tree goes deep and it draws mm. magnesium up. And the modern, shallow-planted, modern, mass-produced vegetables, they're just not... The soil is depleted. Yeah. Well, I mean, mm. no, they're not technically a nut, but cashew nuts... You they're know, a legume, are they? Yeah, well, you know oh, how they, well, like peanuts are a legume, but you know how mm. they say that, uh, you know, you can buy raw cashew nuts. You know, you, sometimes you have raw cashew nuts or roasted mm. cashew nuts. That's a lie. You can't buy raw cashew nuts. And the reason is because they're so incredibly toxic if they're not already cooked. Um, workers, when they're shelling them, they have to wear gloves because of the damage it'll, the lectins will do to their skin. So, I mean... You know, some of these things that people have, I that I'm one. just, I'm very reluctant to, to make a recommendation, which in my heart of hearts, I feel will be harmful to somebody somewhere out there. I mean, mm. I, I just don't want to wear that. No, no. And that's fair enough, Paul. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, a, I think in the coming years, all of this will get understood more people will have CGMs and will understand their own body more and what they yeah. can and can't eat. I think people are going to get more awareness around the challenges with plant foods. And I think when... GMO is an issue. It's a conversation mm. that hasn't been had properly. I think the trouble is that people uh, oppose it almost instinctively, mm. but without an understanding of why it should, why it should often be opposed. And I think certainly, mm. um, you know, crossbreeding a wheat germ or glutenin into a tomato. I mean, mm. and if people understood the effects and the, the deleterious nature of wheat germ or glutenin, I, I think there would be a lot more opposition than there currently is. Yeah, but what you're you're talking about things that have a certain complexity that the average public will never. I, you're right. There's a luddite uh, rebellion, if you in some sense. A lot of the people who are against GMO don't really know why. They just know it's new. And if you it's can't genetics. articulate an argument, it's hard to gain traction. Yeah, and uh, to be honest, I stay out of a lot of stuff uh, because I stick to my focus, which is coronary vascular disease and some of the major problems we've talked about with the cholesterol and insulin and all the rest. A GMO is a bridge too far for me. I, yeah, I mean, to be honest, me too. I mean, <laughs> I, I look at it and it's something that I think is concerning from a public health perspective, but because mm. I, it doesn't affect me personally. No, and I think you have enough fish to fry with, with the fundamentals you've talked about here, actually. The, if we can get a lot of those CGMs and understanding insulin, understanding the problematic nature of certain plant foods and uh, and many other things, and understanding cholesterol properly to put it in context 
Yeah. I think if we get all that done in the next five or 10 years, you know, we can move on to the other mad stuff later. <laughs> yeah, I think we're still taking baby steps. We're dealing with yeah. the, uh, the low-lying fruit at the moment. I mean, it still sounds crazy, but we're still trying to just remove excess sugar from the food supply. I mean, exactly. that, that's the lowest lying fruit yeah. of all. Yeah. So b baby steps first for all of us. You may be massively advanced ahead of the average doctor, but you're still going to be forced to take the baby steps to start fixing population health before we get on yeah. to the sexy stuff. I mean, public <laughs> health is public health. I mean, it's uh, that's it, it's archaic. It is, but that's what we're all out to transform in the following 10 years. All of us, right? Yeah, and I mean, people like yourself, I mean, I have to be honest, I'm a little bit of a, a bit of a stalker. I listen to a few of your podcasts and you're oh, doing uh, an incredible job. I mean, hmm. you're, the advocacy that you're able to do, I mean, you're, you're driving more change than a doctor. And I, I can honestly say with each single podcast you're doing, you're probably helping more patients than most doctors will in their careers. Wow. Well, thanks a lot, Paul. I hope that's true. I know there's an, an element of truth. We're certainly trying really hard. And of course, we're promoting the calcium scans of those diseased people who are at massive risk. Maybe they're thin outside, fat inside. The they don't know. The important They'll thing is out. you're promoting mm. the solution. As well. It's a two-hander, as we always say. Identify the people at risk, not just the overweight smokers, the slim toffees, but then they need to know what to do. And it's not just a medication. They need everything we're talking about. I thought you were going to say knock them out then. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I'm Irish, but I'm not that bad. Not a great stuff. Thanks a lot, it's Paul. Been great fun. We'll do another soon. Thanks, Ivor. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see my subscribe button in the middle of the screen, a free viewing of the Widowmaker movie on the far right, and myself and Dr. Gerber's book, Eat Rich, Live Long, on the left. Otherwise, please do subscribe to the audio podcast. Thanks.